Welcome to Bethel Christian Fellowship. We are a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, our church exists here in the heart of St. Paul, Minnesota, to pray for the nations, to love the nations, and to include the nations. Uh, we're an intercultural church with representatives of nations, almost 30 different countries around the world, and so I'm so glad that you joined us this morning. My name is Andrew Gross. I am the associate pastor of Bethel Christian Fellowship, and if you uh, saw, if you caught our YouTube sermons the last couple weeks, you saw our senior pastor, Pastor Steve Rasmussen, and uh, I encourage you to uh, go ahead and look at his sermons, and you'll understand this sermon better. Uh, this sermon is uh, entitled COVID-19 and the Cross, Part 3, and Pastor Steve preached uh, about uh, COVID-19 and the Cross, Parts 1 and 2, so I'd love to catch you up with all of that. Before I get into this message, I would uh, like to let you know that uh, at the end of this my message, we are actually going to do communion. Uh, virtual communion, of course, because you'll be doing it at home with me. But if you want to pause the video now, go ahead and collect uh, something to represent the elements, a piece of bread or a cracker, a uh, little bit of juice, uh, and then we can do communion. We can observe communion together at the end of our message. So just to make sure that you know. Well, last week, Pastor Steve asked us a very important question. It's a question I've been pondering ever since. And the question <clears throat> is this. What sort of opportunity is this crisis that we're in? We're, we acknowledge that the COVID-19 pandemic is terrible. It's tragic. It's causing damage all over the world in the lives of millions of people disrupting life everywhere. And yet, Pastor Steve told us last week that it's also an opportunity. And so he asked us to consider what sort of opportunity is it exactly? Well, he told us that there's four things that this pandemic gives us an opportunity to do. The first thing he said is that it's an opportunity to repent. Now, repentance means you're going in one direction and then you turn around and you go completely the opposite direction. You uh, take a 180-degree turn and go in the opposite direction. This is a great time to turn our lives around. When the whole world is on pause, now is a good time to pause ourselves, take stock, and turn our lives around. Pastor Steve also told us that it's an opportunity to surrender. Now, surrender, when we're talking uh, about this from a biblical perspective, surrender means to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Most of us consider ourselves uh, to be the master of our own fate, the master of our own lives. But according to the Bible, we are encouraged to see Jesus as the master of our lives. And so this opportunity, this, this crisis that the whole world is going through right now is actually 
an opportunity for us to surrender and call Jesus Lord. And then Pastor Steve told us that this is an opportunity to sacrifice and to love. You may already have sacrificed something during this crisis, uh, or you may, uh, it's possible that you will, will be called to sacrifice something for this crisis going on. Certainly, we are all called to love at all times. And this is an opportunity to sacrifice and love others. So I thought this was great advice. I was very encouraged by what Pastor Steve told us last week. If you haven't uh, looked at the message, go ahead and uh, go ahead and watch that. But of course, it brought up a question for me, uh, a question. And this, this is the question. The, how? How are we supposed to do these four things? How are we supposed to repent? How are we supposed to surrender? How are we supposed to sacrifice? How are we supposed to love? How are we supposed to do that in the middle of this crisis? This crisis has overturned everything. I don't know a single person in the world whose life hasn't been completely disrupted. I think there's two or three countries left that uh, don't have uh, known documented cases of COVID-19. And everybody's life has been disrupted in one way or another. And of course, our resources have already been uh, drained. Many of you listening have already lost jobs in just the first few weeks of this crisis. Some of you will be losing jobs. Some of you are afraid of the jobs that might get lost. All this has left us completely exhausted. Even if you've kept your job, even if your health is still good right now, that all might be true, but we're trying to adjust to working from home. We're trying to adjust to our children doing school from home. We're trying to adjust to the social isolation. We're trying to adjust to doing all kinds of meetings on screens and giving us headaches from all the screen time. And so... Our lives have been completely disrupted and overturned. And so the question remains, how are we supposed to take the opportunity of the crisis and repent and surrender and sacrifice and love? Where are we supposed to get the inner strength for that? That's my question to us this morning. Well, I would like to share with you what the Lord has been revealing to me in recent weeks about how I can get the inner strength to be able to do, do those four things of repenting and surrendering and sacrificing and loving. Not too long ago, I came across this amazing verse and it just sort of leapt right out of the, uh, out of the scripture at me. And it's like the Holy Spirit highlighted it and threw a bunch of sparkles on it and made me pay close attention to it. And that's in Psalm 31, verse 21. Psalm 31, verse 21. And it, it says this, Blessed be the Lord, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. Now, I think the language here is very interesting and appropriate. This phrase, besiege city, we are in a siege, aren't we? 
It's, of course, not a human enemy that's keeping us trapped inside, but it is the enemy of COVID-19 stalking uh, all around us and keeping us trapped inside. And, you know, sieges are, they, they were probably, still are, kind of the most feared tactic in warfare. Now, in, in, in an actual battle where the army gets to go out and meet the other army, uh, there's still at least a fighting chance. There's still something that you can do to defend yourself. But in a siege, there's really nothing you can do. Most people have no other choice but to passively starve and die. Uh, when I lived in St. Petersburg, Russia in the mid-90s uh, as a student, I lived with an older couple, and uh, the, my host father was a survivor of the terrible siege of Leningrad uh, during World War II. In the, he had been a child at the time, but he remembered it very vividly, and uh, he told me some of the stories of what it was like living through that siege. The, the German army uh, laid siege to the great city of Leningrad, a, a city of five million people, and uh, prevented any supplies from coming in or out, trapping the people inside. So, of course, people began to, all their resources began to dwindle. Uh, their food supplies began to disappear. And uh, horrible stories uh, that I heard about it. First, everybody's pets disappeared. And uh, that's because people needed food. And then the stray animals, the dogs and the cats, the strays, began to disappear because people needed food. And then when those disappeared, the rats of the city disappeared because people needed food and they learned how to hunt and trap rats. But finally, most gruesome of all, when the rats had disappeared, the... Uh, the people of Leningrad were forced to, some of them, were forced to open the graves of the recently departed because they needed food. So many people died in, that, in those 900 days of siege. All sieges have horror stories like this. And, uh, and, and, and that's what we feel like we're in right now, isn't it? it, it and, and we don't just feel like we're in it. We're, we actually are in something of a siege. In some ways, it's more terrible because it's everywhere, and there's nowhere we can go. There's no uh, magic supply chain coming from Mars that's going to relieve us. So we feel trapped. We feel like we're in a siege. And the person who wrote the psalm, we don't know if it's David, we're not really sure who the author was, but the psalmist felt besieged. The psalmist felt like he was in a besieged city. So I think the Holy Spirit wasn't, uh, I think he was leading me correctly when he led me to this passage, uh, to this verse, to remind me the truth of it, which is that in the middle of the siege, God can make his loving kindness marvelous to us. It's, it's interesting because the psalmist here doesn't indicate that the siege ends and he doesn't just praise God for God preventing the siege in the first place. Of course, that, we would love that prayer to be answered more than anything, right? God, don't let anything bad happen in the first place. Or if something does bad happen, 
something happens bad, it, we want it to end quickly, don't we? But the psalmist here doesn't indicate that's what's happening. The psalmist says that God makes his love marvelous in the middle of the siege. God does something. It's like he trains a spotlight on his love in such a way that the psalmist can say, God, your love is marvelous in the middle of this siege. And when something's marvelous to us, it is, it, 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 it's stunning, isn't it? It is striking. It is jaw-dropping. It amazes us. It wows us. And so the psalmist here is saying that there's something about the love of God that wowed him, something about the love of God that amazed him, something about the love of God that made him able to endure this siege. And so the message I want to share with you, the encouragement I'd like to share with you this morning is not is not so much uh, a promise or, or, or something that this, the siege of COVID-19 is going to end quickly. We don't know how long this is going to go on. It's not that God's just going to protect you uh, and prevent you from getting COVID-19. We don't know that for sure. You don't know that for sure. Rather, the promise here that I want to encourage you with is that God can make his love marvelous to you. He can amaze you with his love. He can stun you. He can wow you with his love in the middle of this siege that we are all in. And I, I would like to propose, this for your consideration, that your greatest need and my greatest need actually is not that the siege ends early. It's actually not that we just be prevented from getting sick. The greatest need I have deep down in my soul, that you have deep down in your soul, is that the love of God would appear marvelous to you. That you would be stunned and awed and wowed by the love of God. Now, I'm going to admit, maybe that phrase, the love of God, maybe you don't really connect with that phrase. It's possible, I, I, I talk to people who grew up in the church, and uh, you know, when they hear that phrase, the love of God, or God's love, or God loves you, uh, it, it's almost like they hear an old-fashioned nursery rhyme. It's, it's, it, it's, it reminds them of their childhood, but other than that, it doesn't stir up any emotions for them. It doesn't strike them. It doesn't awe them or stun them, or amaze them when they hear that phrase, the love of God. It's even kind of a little bit boring. All right, now, if you're listening and you're in that category, that's, I get that. That, that, that makes sense. I also understand that um, some of you, this very crisis that we're in is probably making you question the love of God in the first place. And uh, you're, you're asking, if God's so loving... How could he allow this? I, I get that. I understand that. That's okay to ask those, those questions. And <clears throat> some of you, of course, have never heard this, the idea of the love of God. This is the first time maybe you stumbled on this accidentally. You've made it through this long in the sermon. Who's that 
weird guy. Um, see what weird stuff he's going to do on the uh, on the video. Um, and you've got this far, and, and but you've never heard the phrase "the love of God" before. And so, uh, so it's new to you, and and I get that too. So I encourage you to go ahead and listen to the rest of the message, um, whatever category you fit into. Um, that's okay. Uh, I, I will say though that the mature Christian and the resilient Christian, the Christian who is able to bounce back from adversity, the Christian who can come back stronger, the Christian who matures is the Christian for whom the love of God appears marvelous. The love of God, when, it, when it, a mature Christian knows how to feed him or herself with the amazing nature of the love of God. That's what gets them through the hard times. And so I want to just ask you to consider that if you're in that category where the phrase, the love of God, sounds boring to you or old or nursery rhymish, or if you're in the category of, I'm really questioning this whole love of God thing, uh, or if you're in the category of, okay, this is a new idea, whatever category you fit in, I, I want to encourage you to press through to where the love of God appears marvelous to you, where you are stunned and awed by the love of God. Because that is the secret strength. That's the secret strength for being resilient in a crisis like this. That's the secret strength. Uh, that's where you're going to get the inner strength to do those four things I talked about earlier, to repent, to surrender, to sacrifice, and to love. Okay. So... To get to talk about the marvelousness of the love of God, I'm going to go for the big guns. All right. Now, the big guns are not how God shows up in nature. That's beautiful. If you see God, God's design, God's handiwork in nature, that's wonderful and awe-inspiring. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about how God shows his love when he provides for us. He does, and you should keep praying for God's provision. Um. Uh, I'm, I'm not even talking about how God protects us, how he shows his love when he protects us. He, he does do all those things and can do all those things. But again, that's not what the mature and the resilient Christians rely on. Mature, resilient Christians, they're like Job. They're, when, when God gives, they're thankful. When God takes away, okay, God, I, I surrender. I'm okay with that. The mature Christians, they go to the big guns. And the big guns are the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was crucified, the Bible upholds that moment as the essence of God's love toward us. And so I'm going to take us there right now to the cross of Jesus. If you could turn with me to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5, this is, I'm going to start in verse 6, Romans chapter 5. This is what it says, starting in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one man will hardly die for a righteous man, 
though perhaps for a good man, someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's uh, examine this a little bit. I I want you to first notice something really important. And that is, I highlighted here all the times that Paul, the author, talks about someone dying for another. In verse 6, it says that Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 7, it uses that idea of dying for another in kind of a generic sense. Someone dying for a good person. And then in verse 8, it says again that Christ died for us. Now, that idea of Christ dying for us, the fancy word for that is it's called the substitutionary death of Jesus. Now, don't get scared off by that big phrase. We all use the word substitution or substitute all the time. When you were a kid and uh, your teacher was sick that day, the principal had to get a substitute, right? Okay, so it's, it's not too fancy of a word, but uh, this idea of the substitutionary death of Jesus, very simply, it's the idea that Jesus takes our place or he substitutes himself so that he suffers the humiliation the torture, and death on the cross that we deserved. Jesus takes our place so that we do not endure the eternal suffering of being separated from God. Jesus takes the place for us. That's what the substitutionary death of Jesus is. Now, this idea... it's based in the Old Testament. It's, it's throughout Scripture. And by the way, guys, books and books and books are written about this. And so I don't have time to give you a real in-depth, meaty teaching on this in the short time that I have. Uh, but it's, it's based in the Old Testament. Um, starts with the idea of animal sacrifices. In the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with that, uh, when someone would sin, certain kinds of sin, when someone would commit a crime or sin, uh, Instead of being punished themselves, they could uh, um, sacrifice an animal, and that animal would take their place. The animal, in other words, would be punished in their place. The animal would substitute for the person who had committed the crime or the sin. Uh, And I'm just giving you one reference here in Leviticus. There's, oh, hundreds and hundreds of references about this. Uh, Also, in the Old Testament, one day a year, it was called the Day of Atonement, and on that day, the high priest of the Israelites, he would place his hands on two different goats and uh, pray over them, and and the placing of his hands was a a sign uh, that he was taking the sin of the people of Israel and placing them on the goats, and then the goats would bear the sin uh, when they, they were sent out into the wilderness to die. The goats would bear the sin of the people. And uh, very importantly, also, uh, throughout the Old Testament, 
the Messiah, the Savior that was promised to the Israelites in the Old Testament, it was foretold that that Savior, that Messiah, would bear the sins of the people. So it's a, it's a very important idea all throughout the Old Testament. And it is taught a lot in the New Testament. Probably the most famous passage is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And this is what Peter writes. And he himself, he's talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, most of the letters of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul thought that this was such an important idea that he, he actually said that it was the most important idea. So Paul here in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And so Paul thought this idea of Jesus substituting himself, the substitutionary death of Jesus, Paul called it the most important idea of first importance. And this idea runs throughout all of uh, the New Testament. I am uh, providing here just a few of the uh, kind of the most famous passages uh, for you to look up uh, in your own time. But uh, it's a very important idea and as Paul writes, it's a central idea that Jesus died for us. Now, I am taking the time to explain this, get into the weeds here, uh, because I, I want you to understand the definition of love that I am working with. If, if the love of God is going to appear marvelous in our eyes, I want you to understand kind of what I'm working with here. And that's this idea. The most marvelous love pays the highest price for the least deserving. Did you catch that? The most marvelous love pays the highest price for the least deserving. Every once in a while, I hear a story about an auction, and uh, I find out that uh, some item for the auction, you know, let's say on the market, somebody might have paid uh, $1,000 for it. It's something very precious. It's something that's very expensive. But then you find out at this auction that instead of paying $1,000 for it, somebody paid a million dollars for it. We're not astounded. We don't marvel. We're not amazed when someone pays the price everyone's expecting for something, right? It's like, okay, yeah, they, they paid the price that was expected. But we are amazed. We are stunned. We are wowed. We marvel when someone pays an exorbitantly high price, when someone pays a price that we think is ridiculously high, and you see, God's love is marvelous because he paid the highest price possible. He paid 
the highest price. But what's the highest price? He paid with his own life. You could search the world over. You could search through the whole solar system. If you had enough lifetimes and you could search and enough power, you could search through the whole galaxy, you could even try to search through the whole universe, you would not find something as precious, as worthy as the life of God himself. God is the fountain of life. God spoke everything into existence, you and me included, with a mere word out of his mouth. God sustains us moment by moment, breath to breath, with just a word out of his mouth. God is the fountain of life itself. Nothing is more precious than the source of life. And God gave that life when he died on the cross for us. When he substituted himself and took our place on the cross, God gave the highest price, even above what anyone could imagine. Now, there's something else that makes God's love marvelous. I want you to understand. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 5, and I want to read it again because I want to point something out that's very important. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 again says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly dare to die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. Look at who Christ died for. Verse 6 says he died for the ungodly. Verse 8 says that he did it while we were yet sinners. That means Christ died for us while we were still opposed to him while we were still running from him, while we were still refusing to go his way, while we were still saying to him, God, I don't want anything to do with you, while we were still fighting him, while we were still searching for ways to get out of doing it his way. It wasn't when we were cleaned up. It wasn't when we had become good. It wasn't when we had turned our lives around. It says that Christ died for us while we were opposing him, while we were fighting him. Guys, that's like Martin Luther King Jr. dying, not for the noble cause of desegregation, but that's like Martin Luther King Jr. dying for the white supremacists who were conspiring against him. That's like Mahatma Gandhi not dying for the noble cause of freeing India from colonial oppression, that's like Mahatma Gandhi dying for the very British overlords who were oppressing them. That's like uh, the famous uh, current uh, teen um, uh, activist, Greta Thun, uh, who's fighting for the environment. That's like her dying not for the noble cause of uh, 
of of saving the earth, but that is like her dying for the you know a room of the top 100 polluters companies that pollute in the world. That's how crazy and ridiculous it is that God, the the source of all life, would die for the least deserving. To remember this definition that I'm working with: the most marvelous love pays the highest price for the least deserving. So God's love is marvelous because he did it for the least deserving. And the least deserving is us. Now, I, I understand maybe you're not really sure about that idea that we're sinners. Uh, it's, it's kind of a troubling idea, especially if, if you've never heard any of this kind of stuff before. It's, it's mind-boggling. Uh, and we don't have time for this in this message, but I'm just going to encourage you to do something maybe a little strange for you. You see, most of us don't think of ourselves as sinners because we're judging ourselves based on kind of the um, things like, well, uh, I, uh, um, I'm good because I recycle. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a decent person because I adopted a rescue dog. Um, I uh, am compliant with all the COVID-19 uh, social distancing restrictions. Uh, we, that's how we tend to judge ourselves, uh, which is understandable. But I'm, I'm going to encourage you to do something kind of weird, kind of radical. Go to the book of Exodus. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's the second book in the Bible. It's after Genesis. And go to chapter 20 of the book of Exodus and look at what you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments before. Go to the Ten Commandments and... Uh, and just look at what they require of the people of God and, and ask yourself as you go through that list, do I, if I were to judge myself against this standard, would I really hold up under that? And that's basically what a sinner is. is a sin is any deviation from that standard. So don't take time now, but go ahead and, and do that at, at some point. And just ask yourself, you know, do, am I really a sinner or not. Uh, the, the second thing I want to say about, about uh, being a sinner is, is this. The whole reason I'm spending time going over this is because our sin problem, my sin problem, your sin problem, is a worse problem than COVID-19. What? What, what, are you, what are you saying? How can that be? COVID-19 is, uh, I think the um, United Nations just called it the worst crisis since World War II, how, how can our sin problem be worse than COVID-19? Well, COVID-19 is bad. It's terrible. It's tragic. It's disruptive. It's destructive. But COVID-19 doesn't, it, it might kill our bodies, but it doesn't separate us from God for all eternity. And according to scripture, our sin separates us from God, not just for a, a momentary time, but it separates us from God forever, for eternity. And COVID-19 is bad, and it scares us, and it's laying siege to us, but it doesn't enslave us the way sin does. Scripture talks about sin as a slave master, ends up controlling us. COVID-19 is bad, but it doesn't blind us the way sin does. Scripture talks about how sin blinds us so that we can't even see the marvelous love of God. It cuts us off completely from 
uh, being able to understand or even recognize the love of God. And COVID-19 is bad, but it doesn't deafen us so that even like sin does, scripture talks about how sin deafens our ears so that even when we hear the truth, we don't understand it. It comes across like uh, in a Charlie Brown show where the adults talk, you know what I mean? Even when we hear the truth, that's what it sounds like. Sin does all these terrible things in us and its consequences are eternal. And so our sin problem is the worst problem we can possibly face. The good news, though, is that Jesus paid the highest price for the least deserving. When Jesus substituted himself on the cross and he died in our place and he suffered the humiliation and torture and death that we deserved, that took care of our greatest problem. And so to close this out, we are now going to do what I had mentioned at the beginning. We are going to receive the elements of communion to celebrate and f- the fact that Jesus has taken care of our greatest problem. And in that way, God has made his love marvelous to us. He has amazed us. He has stunned us. He has wowed us with his perfect love. The highest price, his own life, in our place, given for the least deserving. So communion is uh, something that Christians have been doing for the last 2,000 years. Jesus right before he died on the cross, the night before he died on the cross, he told his disciples to take some bread and uh, take some wine, or in our case, juice, and uh, told them to do this regularly as a way of remembering what he did for them, to remind ourselves of his substitutionary death on the cross. So I'm going to invite you, if you need to pause right now, go ahead and do that. And uh, then we're going to Go ahead and join me again as we observe communion. So the the bread of the communion reminds us of Jesus's physical body and how his physical body was broken for us when he died on the cross. And in the breaking of his body, he was offering to us this gift of his own life for the least deserving. So if you could join with me, in our church we read a passage from uh, one of Paul's writings in the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you can join with me, starting in verse 23. This is what Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you could join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you sent Jesus, your son, to become the true bread of the world. When you sent Jesus 
you gave us the highest and best gift. You gave us yourself, the very source of life. We receive the gift of yourself as you took our place and substituted yourself on the cross. Please receive with me. The second part of this is very similar. Um, starting in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you would pray with me, O oh Lord, by receiving this blood, this, this cup that represents your blood, and by receiving this bread that represents your body, we are declaring your death. We are declaring that you took care of our worst problem, our sin problem, when you took our place on the cross by giving us this blood and making it a covenant to seal the agreement between God and humanity. You have once and for all taken care of our worst problem and reconciled us back to you so that we can be your children. We receive this gift now in your name. Amen. Let us receive the cup together. I am so grateful that you joined us this morning. Uh, if you have questions, if, you, if this brought up comments, if, if you'd like to interact with me in any way, I would love to get an email from you. It's, uh, we're putting it on the screen here. It's agross at betheltwincities.org. Shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether this is all new to you or whether you've been a part of our family for a long time, uh, I pray and hope that you will discover the marvelous nature of the love of God. So now, may the marvelous love of God, may the sweet grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and may the power of the Holy Spirit Go with you as you go from here to make disciples of all nations. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.